morning, everybody. How you guys doing? I love worshiping together. I appreciate you guys coming and joining and, and singing and being eager to hear God's word. We're going to be in Esther chapter 7 today as we continue with uh, this series of Dice or Deity. You can go ahead and open up your Bibles or um, open up your... Uh, your version app on your phone or your iPad or whatever, whatever you're using, just to be able to follow along. There's only 10 verses in this chapter, but they're packed full um, of some moments that we're going to see uh, really are, are defining moments and, and, um, and sealing moments where there's just a, this echo uh, of finality and, and judgment and, and now um, God's purposes and God's plan can move forward in some of these areas um, as literally, you know, this, this battle between light and darkness has been unfolding. Esther is one of those books in the Bible. Um, some people think, you know, another book of the Bible that doesn't mention God uh, Song of Solomon um, doesn't have any overt mentions of God. Esther is one of those ones that has no mention of God, no mention of, of prayer. The name of God isn't in there. Um, there's no kind of overt faith um, that, that is mentioned or pointed out or say, hey, here's a role model for you. And yet at the same time, you know, what the story is that's happening is God is unfolding his story, history of faithfulness. Faithfulness, his promises. He made a promise to the Jewish people long ago, not because of what they were or what they did, but because he wanted to show himself faithful throughout all of history. We've also been kind of wrapping uh, uh, the, the whole series around this verse. You'll see it on your fridge fold, Romans chapter 8. You probably have it memorized by now. You can say it with me, you know, for we know all things, that God works all things together for good for those that love him and are called according to his purposes, right? That's NLT. You know, I, don't, I learned it a little bit different, but, you know, as long as you, as long as you get it, you understand what's happening there. The dynamic is, is God has created us for a relationship with him. He, he's created you and I, because he wants to know us. When he was forming you and fashioning you in your mother's womb, when he was molding and shaping you, when he made your nose that big, you know, or made your ears a little pointy, you know, or stretched me out, I don't know what he was thinking, you know, um, just like, yeah, I'm gonna just make you kind of like tall and gangly. And, and yeah, because I like that, Dan, because, because when he looked at us, it was because he said it was, it was for his good pleasure. And, and he looked at us and said, I made you and it's very good. And that is, that is when we look in the mirror, sometimes we don't see very good. But I want you to know that when God looks at you, he, he sees his beloved. He sees one that he desires intimate relationship with, and that's what you're created for. And so this verse just says that as we live in that purpose, as we respond to the love that God has shown us, as we say, God, I want your purposes, then he unfolds and works all things together for our good. Does that mean that every circumstance is going to be good as I define it? You know, we're never going to get sick. You never experience death or, or disease or pain or abandonment? No. But God comes in and he gives us beauty for ashes and he, and he takes the brokenness of our world and he turns it into his glory. Where we're unable oftentimes to, to overcome the obstacles in our circumstances, God says, I am more than enough and I want to give you the power of my spirit so that you can live a life of overcoming, overflowing joy, 
I want to empower you so that you realize an abundant life, a life above what you expect. Because sometimes we just live in our own expectations, right? Created by our own context. Well, I expect that people are going to break my trust. Well, I expect that this person is going to cause me pain. I expect because what was done to me as a child that I might do that to another child. I expect that what I saw my parents live out in their marriage, that when I get married, I'm going to echo that, and that is going to define my future, and I'm going to experience brokenness. And God says, no, I want to give you more than that. And that's the unfolding story of Esther. Esther is is an orphan. Her parents died at a very young age. Her uncle Mordecai adopted her. And on the front of your fridge fold, you'll see these dicer deity moments that we've kind of walked through. Mordecai and Esther are Jews. God's promise is to preserve the Jews. And over the course of history, no other nation on the face of the earth in any recorded history has survived and stayed intact as a culture and a nation as the Jews have. You ever heard of a Hittite? Nope. Not too many Babylonians around? No, you know? Parasites? No. Canaanites? No. no. These, these Bible names were like, who are all these ites? You know, like, they don't exist. We look at it in, in other history, you know, Phoenicians, you know, they're not around anymore. We don't, have, we don't have these kinds of cultures that have stayed intact, and yet God has preserved the Jews. They've gone through multiple diasporas, being conquered and then being spread out all over the known country, the known world, and yet their their Jewish culture identity remains intact. God has preserved them because of his faithfulness. And so in Esther, this book that that God is not mentioned at all, King Xerxes is mentioned 175 times. And so we have these questions as we're going through, you know, what is this? Is this dice or is this deity? Is this coincidence? Is this chance or is this providence? And so as we look at those dice or deity things, just look at the front of your fridge fold in chapter one. We'll shoot through these. We had uh, this doored moment, dice or deity. Is it dice or deity? Is it doored that Xerxes dumps Vashti, his former queen, because of fearful advice from his advisors and rash reaction of his pride being hurt? Remember, he had this beauty contest. If you look at the works of Josephus, Josephus records that there were about 400 virgins that were brought in to have this beauty contest, and then Xerxes was going to pick one of them to be the next queen. In chapter 2, is it, is it doored that Esther gains favor with Haggai, one of the, one of the leaders uh, of the eunuchs, one of the, the eunuchs that was head in charge of the harems? She was an orphan by circumstance, a Jew by heritage. She was a part of a conquered people in the most powerful nation on earth. They were estimated about 50 million people in the Persian Empire. But she becomes queen not simply for her own success or because of her savvy, but instead because of God's providence and to be used for God's purposes. And then in chapter two, we had, is it doored that Mordecai overhears the plot to assassinate Xerxes and then he isn't rewarded? Is that a doored moment that that Xerxes doesn't reward him? And actually five years go by before he is rewarded. Chapter three, is it doored that Haman casts lots for a genocide date and it came up a year later? 
You remember Haman enters the scene and he's second in command in all of the Persian Empire. And he really is leveraging these things for his own good. He, pays, he offers to pay Xerxes just a ton of money in order to be able to get his way because he has this, this personal vendetta against this guy, Mordecai, who just happens to be a Jew, who just happens to be Esther's cousin. And so as, she, as they're living this out, you know, we really see, um, you know, Haman's motive is not, well, it seems on the surface very generous, you know, like, hey, I'll give you this really large gift, Xerxes. But true generosity comes from a heart unburdened by the anchor of ego. You know, if we look at the things that we give away and they're just simply to make us feel good about ourselves, if, if, if generosity does not include sacrifice, then it isn't generosity. True generosity is sacrificial and it isn't defined by, by self, but it's really about a heart to care for others. We're very generous people in this community, people that, that keep our budget in, in line and, and give sacrificially, people that, that are faithful in the giving of their tithes and offerings, people that see the need in, in, in people's lives and try to make things happen. This week, as I, w- I was able to just kind of be part of facilitating someone in our community, giving someone else in our community a car. What an amazing thing to just be able to walk through and see sacrificial generosity, to, to see care and love and really looking at people and go, you're, you're my family, not by blood, not by the same blood flowing through our veins, but, but because we're part of the family of God, because of the blood of Christ. And you're hurting and I want to help take care of you. True generosity, beautiful thing. Now, this is really in the story at this moment when we start getting into chapter 6 where we get some of our context for today because the things that we've been looking at over the last two weeks, um, skipping Father's Day and everything, were really um, something that's happening kind of in our context uh, really in about the last 30 hours. Just kind of picture all of these events unfolding from about yesterday afternoon. And here we are, we're just kind of sitting in that place, and, and, and this is all happening one thing after another. And so in chapter 6, is it door that Xerxes has insomnia on the eve of Mordecai's execution, and the kings asked for government records to help him sleep. But it happens to be the account of Mordecai saving his life that they read. And so what's happened is, is that we're experiencing, you know, Mordecai or um, Haman's plan to kill Mordecai. Then that very night, Xerxes has insomnia. They bring the records. He just so happens to read about this time when Mordecai saved his life out of all of the chronicles of his reign. They pick that particular thing to read. And then they find out, oh, he was never rewarded. Well, the whole plan, you know, Pastor Eric talked about it two weeks ago, uh, of, of, of Haman erecting this, this big pole to impale Mordecai in. He could hardly sleep that night. He could hardly sleep last night because he was waiting to wake up this morning and go and get permission from the king to commit murder. He was excited about the heinousness of his crime, about, about exacting his vendetta, about getting revenge because Mordecai never gave him respect. And then we're going to see in this, in this, in this chapter that, um, that we have another doored moment that is going to play out. But what I thought we'd do um, is, you know, maybe you remember this from, um, you know, from a, from a childhood game. And honestly, I really don't know why 
this is a childhood game at all? I mean, why do we play practicing words about hanging people? What is wrong with us? But it just so happens in this hangman, we have Haman. And so we're going to see over the course of this chapter that Haman is going to roll in this game of dice or deity, he's going to roll snake eyes. Snake eyes, when you roll that, you know, in the game of craps, you crap out. That's it. That's the lowest thing you can roll, and you're, and you're out of the game. You lose your whole bet. You roll snake eyes, and the two pips are there looking at you, and they, and they said that that, remember, that resembled the eyes of a snake. It, it resembled treachery and betrayal, and how appropriate is it that in this game of, of hangman, in this game of dice or deity, Haman is going to roll snake eyes and we're going to see what happens to him. But seriously, like, why is this a thing? I don't, I don't, I still don't understand it. So, um, but let's, let's jump into chapter seven. We're going to look at the first couple verses um, and, and just follow along um, in this story. And remember that, that Haman has leveraged his power and his position as the second highest official in the Persian empire. And he's using it to try to fulfill his own personal vendetta. But on a larger scale, I wonder if he really understands that he is just simply a pawn being used by the enemy. You know, when we look at, at this spiritual truth that, that God has created us as spiritual beings, you know, you, sometimes we think of ourselves and like, well, I have a body and it houses my, my mind and my heart, my consciousness, and I go about and I do things in the world, you know, but it's been said, you know, what you, you are a spirit, you have a body. You are a spiritual being, and in this spiritual reality, God wants to cultivate our spirit for eternal relationship with him, and then there is also this enemy. And in this larger scheme of what, of what Haman is trying to accomplish, he has this history that maybe he's aware of, maybe he isn't. I'm not really sure whether Haman was a history buff or not. But what we do know is that, is that Haman was a descendant of the Agagites. Remember, and the, and the Agagites were, were a sect of the Amalekites. And the Amalekites were the people that attacked Israel on their way out of Egypt almost a thousand years before this moment in time. As they were leaving and being delivered by God, the Amalekites come up from behind Israel and attack at their weakest place. Old, older people and young children and women. And God says, I'm going to wipe you guys out. Well, about 400, about 400 years go by, King Saul comes on the scene. God says, go and wipe out the Amalekites, and he doesn't do it, right? And this King Agag was spared, and then Samuel ends up killing him. Now, years later, as we look back, this same exact war is playing out. Saul was a Benjamite. Mordecai? Mordecai was a son of Kish. He was a descendant of Kish, who was also... Benjamite. Haman, he's a descendant of the Agagites, the Amalekites. And so now, a thousand years later, the same exact war is playing out in history, and, and Haman is trying to live out his own personal vendetta, but really he's part of Satan's plan. Because anytime we give in to these things of anger and revenge, Anytime we're simply living for our own devices, we need to understand that we're living for our flesh, but we're being used by the spiritual forces of evil. It's just that simple. 
It's not really about us at all. And the enemy is using Haman to try to wipe out the Jews. The Jews have been given an expiration date, March 7th of the following year. As Haman has devised this plan, that's kind of what's going on. So here in the last 30 hours or so, Haman has planned to impale Mordecai. Xerxes had insomnia and found out about Mordecai saving his life but not being rewarded. Haman has to honor Mordecai because as Haman comes in in that morning ready to ask permission to kill Mordecai, then Xerxes says, hey, what should we do to honor somebody who has, who has honored the king? And Haman's like, hey, in his giant ego, who would the king want to honor more than me, right? And so he says, well, this is what you should do. You should throw that man, because of course it's a man, right? Throw that man on, on a horse, dress him in the kingly robes, parade him around town. This guy is so focused on himself, he can't see past his own reflection in the mirror. And then he finds out the truth. Okay, great. Don't leave anything out that you've said, Haman, and go do all that for Mordecai. So he goes home dejected. He tells his family, throws a pity party, and his family, the same family who said, hey, here's a great idea for Mordecai the Jew. Set up this big pole so that you can kill him in the morning. They say to him, oh, Hey, Haman, you're an idiot, man. You are fighting against a Jew. And don't you know that if you keep fighting against a Jew, this is gonna be fatal for you. You're gonna die. So his pity party just gets worse. And at that moment, the king's eunuchs come and take him to the banquet. And that's where we pick up in chapter seven, verse one. So the king and Haman went to Queen Esther's banquet. beginning of the noose here now remember the first one Haman went to the banquet with joy I get to have a private banquet with the king with the queen his ego is being puffed up but now this time he's being taken after this parade with Mordecai and after his family tells him that if he resists then he's going to end up dying in verse 2, it says, On this second occasion, while they were drinking wine, the king said again to Esther, Tell me what you want, Queen Esther. What is your request? I will give it to you, even up to half the kingdom. And the next piece of the puzzle is put into place. And what's happening here is, remember the day before, Esther had been given favor. And they went, Haman and, and the king went to a, the banquet that Esther had thrown. And they're all drinking wine. And, and Xerxes is like, hey, tell me what you want. And, well, this is really what I want. Why don't you, for whatever reason, the timing wasn't right. Hey, just come on back tomorrow and let's drink some more. I'm not really sure if now is the right time for me to ask you this really kind of really, really serious question of, of me, my life, and, and my people's lives and this expiration date that has been stamped onto us. Huh? For whatever reason, it wasn't the right time. And, and so she waits, and she gives this request in verse 3. If I have found favor with the king, and if it pleases the king to grant my request, I ask that my life and the lives of my people be spared. Somebody wants to kill us. She puts all the cards out on the table. She throws the dice and, and waits to see what is going to be the answer. Is he going to blow up? Is he going to say, you know, oh, well, there's 399 other virgins that are in my, in my harem, you know, that I, could, that I could have chosen. I'll just pick one of them. Oh, well, 
No big deal. No, this is how he replies. Well, this is a continuation of what she replies. For my people, verse 4, and I have been sold to those who would kill, slaughter, and annihilate us. If we had merely been sold as slaves, I could remain quiet, for that would be too trivial a matter to warrant disturbing the king. And so she goes in and she actually uses the same exact language that, that Haman had written into the petition. Because it wasn't enough just to kill them. You need to slaughter them and annihilate them and murder them and destroy them. All of these things he's, he's laying out. And, and the king hears this and it's just kind of soaking in. But, but Esther's doing something very, very shrewd here. Because she doesn't just have a, a big pity party. She doesn't just throw herself at the feet of King Xerxes and plead for her life and, and, and try to get on his heartstrings, but she presents it in a very accounting kind of way. Well, listen, you know, um, me and my, and my people, we've, we've been put on the chopping block, and you're really going to lose out because we do a lot of good work for you, <laughs> and, and we... And I'm your queen, you know, so you're going you're gonna to ha- lose a queen. You're going to lose all of these people that right now are a valuable workforce. And she kind of lays this out. If we had just been slaves, well, then great. Your bottom line really wouldn't have been affected. It wouldn't have been that big of a deal. But hey, you're going to lose out a lot on this. And if you look deeper into the language, she's, she's kind of taking this tact, trying to be very, very clever, very shrewd, very unemotional. But then Xerxes reacts to this verse 5 who would do such a thing Xerxes demanded who would be so presumptuous as to touch you and there it is now all of a sudden oh wait a second what they're gonna who wants to touch my queen who thinks that they have the right to lay their hands upon you And Esther replied in verse 6, this wicked Haman is our adversary and our enemy. You can just imagine, okay? (laughs) Haman's sitting around the little cafe table. It's just the three of them. They're sipping on some nice red wine or something, you know. The conversation's going well. They're having a party, you know. Oh, this is, my, my day's getting better. It started out really, really bad. I had to parade this guy around that I hate, you know. My, my whole family is saying that I'm probably going to end up dead. But hey, I'm now sitting with the king and the queen. We're sipping on some bubbly, having a good time. What, 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 I'm sorry, what? What are you? Queen Esther, what did you just say? As she points the finger right at him, Haman grew pale with fright. Haman grew pale with fright just sits in this place like there's no higher power for him to appeal to, right? One, he has set himself up as the higher power. He has the king's signet ring. He's second in command of the entire empire. He's using all of the resources that have been entrusted to him, not for the good of the people, but in fact, to kill people and to get and to satisfy his own ego. Well, verse 7, then the king jumped up to his feet in a rage and went out into the palace garden. He reacts. Now, this is one of those places, you know, kind of like on a side note, if you're, if you're a leader, if you're in a, in a position where God has entrusted power to you, 
where you're there to manage people or to care for people or to help an organization grow. You've been entrusted in an empire of some sorts. You know, this is one of those places where you find leadership is really lonely. What's going on in Xerxes' mind? Well, one, somebody wants to lay hands on his wife, okay? If that isn't bad enough, his second in command is betraying him. Somebody that he has entrusted power and position his right-hand man is, is stabbing him in the back, trying to get his own way. And he does something in, the, in this space. I'm sure he, he's in this place of kind of like naivety. How is all of this happening? Yes, I, re, I seem to remember that petition, but I was just kind of like, yeah, Haman, just kind of do whatever you want. Who were the Jews anyway? And you remember up until this point, Mordecai had instructed Esther, don't tell anybody that you're a Jew. So her heritage is a secret. And now in this moment, he suddenly finds out, my wife is a Jew, my, my right-hand man wants to kill her and all of her people, I, I, I can't trust him, and now what, and I signed the, her death warrant. I allowed it to happen, and in this place, he just gets up and he walks out of the room. Haman, however, stayed behind to plead for his life with Queen Esther, for he knew that the king intended to kill him. Little tears. All of a sudden, Haman's having this reality check. Oh my goodness, what? what? I, I, thought, I thought I was untouchable. I mean, I, I've got the king's signet ring. Anywhere I go, I, any club that I walk up to, I can get in. Any party that I want to attend, I have an open invitation. Anything that I want to pass into law, I've got it. It's right there. All I have to do is just dip the wax and stamp it, and my power is complete. And all of a sudden, his world is just crumbling around him. He thought he was worthy of being the king, and he started acting like he could do whatever he wanted. It's a very dangerous place for us. We do this in our own lives. We get the ball rolling. We, I, I, can, I can do this, and, and this is how I'm going to make my next million dollars. And this is how I'm, I'm, I'm going to win her heart. And this is how I'm going to get into bed. And this is how I'm going to, and all of these kinds of things. And we start getting the ball rolling on exercising our own power with our imaginations. But at some point, our heart's going to be revealed. We may never find the, the end of our imagination, but we're all going to find the limits of our hearts. God has so designed us that, that we cannot deny heartbreak. We have to identify it and then make a choice to live in denial or to embrace the brokenness and find healing. Haman dreamed up an amazing scheme to wipe out, wipe out the Jews, but he found that the real issues of life flow from the heart. And the rage he stirred up was now equal to the fear that he had for his own life. Our hearts revealed the truth about what we believe. And wherever there is fear, there is not security. Wherever there is fear, there is torment. And so here he is, verse 8, in despair, he fell on the couch where Queen Esther was, was reclining just as the king was returning from the palace garden. This is our Dicer Deity moment for the day. 
Xerxes gets up and walks out, and maybe, maybe he wasn't going to come back. Maybe he could have come, come, come back at any moment, but he happens to come back as they're all kind of around this table eating. One of the things that they did in that culture was very similar to what they did in Jewish culture is they would actually be lounging. They would actually just kind of be laying back on couches. And so Queen Esther is kind of in this prone position, propped up, and, and, and King Xerxes has left the room, and Haman throws himself on the couch by Queen Esther, just as Xerxes walks into the room. And as soon as the king spoke, I'm sorry, then the king exclaimed as he walks back into the room, will he even assault the queen right here in the palace before my very eyes? Is it, who does this guy think he is? Remember his first reaction was, who would dare to touch my wife? And now Haman is lying maybe at the feet or the, on the legs of Esther in this very compromising position, crying for his life in this fit of, of anxiety and worry and desire for self-preservation. And so as soon as the king spoke, his attendants covered Haman's face, signaling his doom. It's one of those things kind of culturally, you know, your face is no longer going to be seen. They, they throw whatever was available, pull up his shirt like in a hockey thing and just throw it over his face, you know, and, and escort him over, over to the pen. You know, it, you're done, man. You're, you're in timeout. You're, your face is not going to be seen anymore by the king. You're, you're going to die. Then Harbona, one of the king's eunuchs, said... Haman has set up a sharpened pole that stands 75 feet tall in his own courtyard. He intended to use it to impale Mordecai, the man who saved the king from assassination. I bet Haman's just going, oh my goodness, this guy. <laughs> Seriously? Like, I thought this was just like in the family circle. This was my little private imagination. This was my little fantasy that I had created. And now, oh, oh my Oh my, what is going to happen? Then impale Haman on it, the king ordered. And there's Haman. And so what's happening is, I don't know how Harbona, you know, heard, you know, dice or deity, maybe they're all around, you know, the eunuch water cooler, uh, you know, and, and they're just hanging out and, and, hey, did you hear what Haman's trying to do? And, oh, oh, really? Oh, I went to Mordecai's, Mordecai's house and I was with him, you know, when he, when Haman rode him around on the, on the donkey, you know, and, and, and oh man, oh, I wonder what's going to happen, you know, and they're all just, and then sure enough, he just kind of chimes in right there. Well, hey, if you're looking for a way to kill Haman, Haman already created the implement of his own destruction. This is what's going on with impalement. You know, they, they talk about the sharpened pole, if you, depending on the, the Bible translation that you have. Um, then one of the things that they, they talk about is gallows or, or hanging. And, and the whole idea is, is that they would suspend the person. And so that's why some translations have the, this gallows. But the Persians were notorious for impalement. Not necessarily with sharpened objects, um, those would kill too quickly, but usually with blunt objects. And they would take um, a, a pole and put it in your, in your no-entry 
um, place and they would suspend you with a rope over the top of it and they would lower you and if it didn't fit, then they would simply take a knife and enlarge the area so that the pole would fit and they would lower you slowly. I really don't want to get any more detail than that. You get the picture. And this is what Mordecai's vain imaginations had dreamed up to do to Mordecai. This is what Haman's vain imaginations had dreamed up to do to Mordecai. And King Xerxes says, go put Haman on the pole. 75 feet, 50 cubits, the length of your elbow to your, the tip of your fingers on average. And a lot of times people, um, as they read this, you know, think, well, you know, like how are you even going to see somebody on the top of a 75-foot pole? But, but usually what, what they had was it was not necessarily a 75-foot pole. It was, at 75, or, or it was at 75 feet of elevation. So one of the things that they did for public shame was they would put you on a hill and they would kill you. And so everybody walking by, oh, there's the place of execution. They could walk up the hill. But it was a place that could be seen from, from many miles around. Oh, someone's getting executed. And this is what, this, and this ironic justice, as, a, as Haman uses his own vengeance to try to bring around his own fantasy, he ends up dying by his own devices. And if we're honest with ourselves, how many times do we try to create our own version of peace in our lives? And we end up creating pain and suffering by our own methods of coping. Peace found by our own devices is simply coping. True peace from God overcomes and lasts. And we can't settle for less. How do you create your own peace? I used to be notorious for avoiding conflict. That was my MO. Conflict? Uh, no conflict here. I'll just avoid it. Create peace. Trying to win every perceivable conflict or maybe escaping reality or maybe creating your own version of reality. How do you create peace? What are things that challenge your peace? Does criticism derail you? Are you controlled by addiction? Do you live for your own success or pleasure? Or maybe like Esther earlier on in the story, maybe you're just a bystander in your own life and you let everybody else make decisions for you. You don't take responsibility. How do you create your own peace? What are the challenges to your peace? And the challenge for us is to really find the story of God's faithfulness unfolding in our own lives. Just the same way that this book has no mention of the name of God and yet his fingerprints, providence are all over it. Where is God unfolding the story of his faithfulness to you? Focus your eyes upon it. Look for the blessing. Look for the good like we see in Romans chapter 8. Fix your eyes upon Christ and let God reveal his perspective to you. Because 2,000 years ago, another man was impaled. Another man was put on a stake. Another man was, was crucified on a tree in an elevated place on the hill of the skull in Calgary, Golgotha. Jesus Christ himself and he was put there in public shame. 
He was put there in a a place that you and I will never know, not just in physical torment, but in separation from God. And he did it willingly and with joy and with a broken heart all at the same time so that you and I could know intimate relationship with Christ, that you and I could have true and lasting peace. As we enter into this this final worship song, we're just going to sing of the faithfulness of God and invite you to fix your minds upon Christ and to stir up your faith and to let God have his way with you and answer maybe some of these questions. What challenges your peace or how do you create your own peace? And lay those things at the foot of the cross because Christ has paid. You don't need to cope anymore. He offers us hope. You don't have to roll the dice and see if it comes up snake eyes. He wants to give us lasting peace. Let's pray.